Well, Christmas Day has come and gone, but as Fred mentioned earlier, in the church calendar, we're still in the Christmas season. So our focus is still on the coming of Jesus and what he came to do. What is it that he came to do? We read in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners. To save sinners. We're going to be in Ephesians 1 today. And in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Paul wants to give us a glorious vision of the salvation God has brought us in Christ. He wants us to see that our salvation is reason to rejoice in God. Our salvation is reason to rejoice in God. Paul begins this section by blessing God, by praising him. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. Do we have joy in our salvation? Do we bless God, not only in our private prayers, but in our words and actions around other people for his salvation? Maybe you're like me and you have times when you don't really feel like you have that desire to share Christ. That happens, doesn't it? Well, maybe the reason some of us don't have that desire is because we've lost some of our joy in God's salvation, some of our own joy in him. We share our joy in lots of other things, don't we? Um, to give a somewhat trivial example, my wife and I were down in Georgia for the Christmas break, and we found out about this board game that we'd never heard of before uh, from her parents, and we loved this game so much that even though it wasn't our game, it was her parents' game, we took it with us from her parents' place to my parents' place, and we got about a dozen different people to play it with us while we were down there, and had other people thinking that they were going to go out and buy it too, because we were so excited about it. Why were we, why were we sharing this with so many people? Why were we telling so many people about this board game? Well, because we were excited about it, and we enjoyed it, and we wanted to enjoy it with other people. If you're excited about something, you share it with people. So what does it mean if we find ourselves just keeping our Christianity a secret? Not actively seeking to share Christ with the people we know. Well, it could mean a lot of things, but I'm convinced that one, one thing that it means is that maybe we have lost some of our joy in him. We get excited about a lot of things, don't we? We get excited about sports and games and hobbies, even about school or work sometimes. Crazy, I know. But when was the last time you were excited about God's salvation of your soul? Well, if you're like me and go through times when you don't feel like you're really experiencing that joy in Jesus, then Paul's words today are a needed reminder. Because he tells us that our salvation is reason to rejoice in God because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I see Paul's joy in God's salvation in this passage. So let me pray for you now. 
what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Gracious Father, give to your people this morning the spirit of wisdom to enlighten the eyes of their hearts that they may know what is the hope to which you have called them. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe? Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Why is our salvation reason to rejoice in God? Paul gives three reasons. And I'm not just saying three reasons because I go to a seminary that is mostly Presbyterian. <laughs> it happens to break down into three reasons very well, actually, because he follows each reason corresponds to the per a person of the Trinity. First of all, Paul says, your salvation is reason to rejoice in God because the Father has planned your personal salvation from before the world began. Let me read verses four through six. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We've had... Christmas recently, and most of us probably got some gifts. You ever get that gift that you open up and you think, you know, I, I mentioned that like six months ago and completely forgot about it. <laughs> and this person somehow remembered it and has been planning this gift for six months. Doesn't that make you feel cared for and loved? Well, we, we read about God's plan in these verses. How much greater is his care and love for us? Because he did not just plan our salvation for six months, nor even just from before we were born, nor even from the time that he sent Christ into the world. But what does it say? From before the world began, from the foundation of the world God chose you. God has had this eternal plan from before the foundation of the world to bring those he has chosen to himself. But not only does the Father's plan demonstrate his loving care for us, but what we also see is that his salvation is personal and relational. What has he chosen us for? It's not merely a legal transaction um, I'll use an illustration that I heard recently. If you're convicted or charged with a crime and you're in court and the district attorney says, we've decided, we've decided not to prosecute, you're free to go. You might be thankful and grateful, but you're not going to go run over and hug and kiss the guy for it. <laughs> There's nothing personal or relational necessarily about it. But what does this scripture say? Not merely that he forgives us our sins, although that is an essential part of it. He says, in love, we, he predestined us for adoption. For adoption to himself. 
as his children. Our salvation is not only planned out in advance, but it is deeply personal and relational. When God draws you to himself, he doesn't just forgive you forgive your sins, he adopts you into his family. Think about it this way. Before God was creator or ruler over the universe, God existed in perfect love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has always, in his essence, been the God of love. And even before he was your creator and ruler, he's your loving Father. Because it says, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters. Before the foundation of the world. We sometimes fall into thinking about forgiveness of sins and salvation as something that's not necessarily having this personal or relational dimension. We may be thankful that Jesus died for our sins, but how often do we think about what that entailed? That God the Father sent his only son to live in this crooked and twisted world, to be born in a trough that stable animals ate from. As the pastor from uh, my wife's parents' church would say, he was born in a stank trough. <laughs> it's true. He came and was beaten and mocked and treated as the scum of the earth and finally crucified as a criminal. Why? So that he could claim us, the ones he had chosen from before the foundation of the world, as his family. He doesn't just want to wants you to accept him as your savior. He wants you as his own daughter or son. That is reason to rejoice. Our salvation is reason to rejoice in God because the father planned your personal salvation from before the world began. Second, our salvation is reason to rejoice in God because Jesus counted your life worth dying to redeem. This plan of the Father to adopt you into his family from before the world began is accomplished in a shocking way. He doesn't just snap his fingers and say, your sins are forgiven. He does it in a much more deep and personal act of love by sending his only son to die a sinner's death in our place so that he could redeem us and claim us as his own. Let me read to you verses 7 to 12 in Ephesians 1. In him, it's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What I see in these verses, if I could sum it up in just a phrase, is that Christ is everything. Christ is everything. Everything. 
Look at all of the spiritual blessings that Paul talks about, not just in these verses, but in the entire passage. All the spiritual blessings are in Christ. Just look through at the number of times that Paul says, or through Christ. It's actually in almost every verse of this section. And it actually continues throughout most of the book of Ephesians. So he says, you were chosen in Christ. You were adopted in Christ. You were bought by Christ's blood. You were forgiven in Christ. The Father lavished his grace on you in Christ. You're going to see God because you are in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit because you are in Christ. And here's the point. You cannot separate salvation or any spiritual blessing from belonging to Christ. And if that's true, then shouldn't belonging to Christ be what we most desire? And we want to know, how do we belong to him? Well, it says right here in verse 7, how do we belong to him? He says, we were redeemed. We were purchased for his possession to belong to him through his blood. And praise God that it's not through anything that we can do that we belong to Christ but it's through Christ's own sacrifice, through his blood that was shed on the cross in our place, that we belong to him when we put our trust in him. Here's what that means. If everything is Christ, if everything worth having in this life is in Christ, then that means you might have everything this world can offer. You might have a good job, a family, money, good health, a good reputation. But if you don't have Christ, all these things really offer you nothing. You might feel secure, but if you don't belong to Christ, then everything you've built your life and happiness on is going to rot away like a termite-infested house, or it's going to be washed away like that house built on a foundation of sand. As the psalmist puts it at one point, your feet are set on slippery places. But here's what it means if you belong to Christ. Even if you, by this world's definition, have nothing in this life, if you don't even know what tomorrow holds, if everything in this life seems like it's against you, if you're struggling with ill health, but you belong to him, then you really have everything. You have redemption through his blood. You can stand before God because your sins are forgiven. You are a son or a daughter of the king you have the Holy Spirit. So this is really true, then let's set our minds on things above and not on things below. How often do we spend time thinking about our material blessings or the material blessings we'd like to have? And how much time do we spend thanking God, both for those material blessings, but especially our spiritual blessings that we have in Christ? Do you wake up blessing God 
because he's redeemed you. Because the Lord of the universe has chosen you. Because Jesus thought you were worth dying for. Because you belong to him forever. Or do you wake up anxious, complaining about a raise you didn't get, or that your bank account doesn't make you feel secure enough, or that you have extra work to do because of a lazy coworker, or any number of daily annoyances? I think we have a problem of perspective. Because I see Paul in this chapter blessing God overwhelmed by this vision of God's salvation. This is Paul. He had more reason to complain than any of us ever could. He didn't just have a lazy co-worker. He had co-workers who turned their backs on him and betrayed him. He didn't just have an insecure bank account. He had a non-existent one. He was working to make tents to provide a living for himself so that he wouldn't have to ask the people he ministered to for money. And he didn't have anything, any problems as small as not getting the right salary. Here's what Paul says about his trials in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I had imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. But Paul has more joy and contentment than most people in the church. Why? Because he knows where true joy and contentment and assurance come from. Not from anything this world offers, but from the one who died for you and the spiritual blessings that we have in him. Our salvation is reason to rejoice in God. Because Christ gave everything to redeem you and reclaim you as his own, so that now you have everything in him. And finally, our salvation is reason to rejoice in God because he has given us the Holy Spirit. Let me read you these last two verses in this in this section. Starting in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our salvation is reason to rejoice in God because he has given us the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, there's quite a few passages that talk about what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, causes us to be born again, raises us from our spiritual death. Look at what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. The Holy Spirit unites us with Christ. All those spiritual blessings that are in Christ, it's because the Spirit unites us to him. The Holy Spirit teaches us how to pray. 
Romans 8 says that he makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit comforts us. It is all this and much more. But the specific role of the Holy Spirit that Paul has in mind here and wants us to see is his assurance. Paul calls the Holy Spirit here a guarantee or down payment. You might have in your footnote a guarantee or down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And what's the point here? It's that this life is not all there is. There is an inheritance we have to look forward to. This is what all of the believers of the Old Testament knew. This is what Hebrews 11 is about, is that they walked by faith, not counting any blessings that they had in their life, as permanent, but looking forward to the inheritance that was promised in God. And the Holy Spirit is called a guarantee of that inheritance or a down payment on the glory that we will experience in the new heavens and new earth. In other words, in the Holy Spirit, we have God's presence with us and in us even now. But that measure of his presence is only a down payment on what he has promised in the next life, when his dwelling place will be with us and he himself will be our light. Look at that vision in the last couple chapters of Revelation. And this is the ultimate spiritual blessing we look forward to, life fully in God's presence. Our salvation is reason to rejoice in God because he has given us the Holy Spirit. Paul wants us to rejoice in God when we see what he's done for us. When we see that he has chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, forgiven us, made us part of his family, and given us a guarantee of an even more joyous inheritance when we see him face to face. And he wants us to rejoice, not just so we can feel good about it, but so that God will be glorified. Look at the refrain through this whole passage. God chose us for adoption as, as his children. For what purpose? Verse 6, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Christ died for us to bring us redemption, forgiveness, and an eternal inheritance. For what purpose? Verse 12, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. God gave us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the life to come. For what purpose? Verse 14, again, it's to the praise of his glory. The primary purpose of your salvation is the glory of God. And that is good news because not only is he the only one worthy to receive glory, but God's glory is also your gain. Look at verse 6. It says, Our salvation is to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's glory and our salvation are intertwined. God's glory and his love for us are inseparable. But this also inverts our thinking, doesn't it? Isn't our salvation about us? No, Paul says. Salvation is God-centered, not us-centered. So let's rejoice in God 
and not keep our salvation a secret. Look for opportunities to speak the gospel into people's lives, whether that be to your neighbors or coworkers or your friends or someone in your family. Here's what I found. If you ask God for the opportunities, he's going to give you the opportunities. And if you ask him to give you the words to say to someone, he gives you the words. But we receive little because we ask little. This good news of salvation is not just for us. It is for the glory of God. And if Christ is everything and all is lost without him, then let's not hold back. Let's show others our joy in him and invite them to join us to the praise of his glory. Amen.